Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. I was thinking, to, you know, it's been 14 months, and uh, I mean, we were together last week. But 14 months before that, I got up this morning, and I thought, I wonder how the rain is going to affect us after 14 months of being apart. And sure enough, some people just couldn't overcome the winter storm. <laughs> so uh, I think you guys know, but we're doing uh, a live service at 9 a.m. at our Pasadena campus, and so... Uh, somewhere around 10 o'clock, I got in the car and started driving this way, and then I tuned into our online feed. So I've been worshiping with all of our online folks, so hello, folks. Glad you're all with us. So lots of things happening at once. So while all that's going on, let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Now, that's, I don't mean, that's not an existential question. I don't mean why do you exist? I mean, why are you here in this room right now, or online, for the soul? Yeah. And I think when we start to think about why we are here, there's a, I don't know, there's a lot of reasons why we show up at a place like this to worship. Some of us do because we always have. Because it just doesn't feel like a Sunday if we haven't entered into a place of worship and sat in a space like this and worship together. Some of us... Somehow, the way we were brought up, it created an ought, and we feel like we ought to be here. So we, we ought to go to church, and so here we are. We're oughting our way into this space. Do you ever ask yourself, as you get ready on a Sunday morning, that would cause you to get out into this storm that we're having today, Stormwatch 2021? You know, what drives me out of my warm bed on a rainy Sunday morning, of which we get so few in Southern California. And always on Sunday, what's up with that? (laughs) Why not a nice Saturday to sleep in and not have to work in the yard? Why not? But always a Sunday morning. What got you going? Because underneath it all, it seems like to me that maybe there's a, a really good reason to be here. Like maybe my world gets sort of you know, twisted up through the course of a normal week. Busyness and and the stuff that happens and, and, and the politics and the divisiveness of our culture and, you know, scrolling through social media and hearing the comments. And maybe I just need to get away. I need to get out of that and I need to have a reset. I need to get a space where there's a realignment of priority, where, where something changes very fundamentally. And I've said this before, this isn't an escape from reality, this is an escape to reality. This is, this is walking in the door begging and pleading God to reorder me in such a way that's true, that's real, that's good, that's, that's not calibrated by something going on in the world right now, but calibrated by the divine God of the universe where I get to reorder my life around some things. But when I push a little deeper into that thought process, then I start to think, but there's more than that. I I enter into a space like this because I really believe that I need to be wrapped up in the arms of a shepherd. I need that kind of care and love. And even more than that, I, I believe 
that in being wrapped up in the arms of that shepherd, that something changes in me. That in fact, if I have any real hope of personal transformation, it's because somehow my life intersects the God of the universe and, and, and because of his grace and his power, something fundamentally changes inside of me. I become a person who is being changed into the image of God. And if that's too much for you on a Sunday morning, then maybe we say it this way. I'm being changed into a mature person with genuine depth, who understands and recognizes truth when it appears, who, who understands how to, as the scripture says, to know his good and perfect and pleasing plan. Something changes in me. And if I push a little beyond that, then I, I start to think this. This is what I really believe. I'm here because I want to worship the Creator. I want to be connected in personal relationship with the God of the universe. And I believe that this personal relationship exists. I believe that I am personally connected to this God who speaks to me and leads me and guides me and teaches me and matures me and offers me maturity and depth. And then I believe that this personal relationship allows transformation for me personally and it helps me make sense of the world that I live in. It helps me make sense of the relationships I share. And so I don't just show up on Sunday morning because I think it's fashionable or because I think it's an odd or because I think it's a self-help program. I show up because I believe this personal relationship with God has the power to change me and it has the power to change the world in which I live. And that makes me think how, if this is true, if this is what, that at the creation of the world, God said, do a bunch of stuff, but one day a week, set aside time to get into relationship with God so you won't get crazy, so you won't go nuts. And then I think, how did this simple idea, in fact, when Jesus is asked, what's this all about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Go, get out, that's enough. You're dismissed. Not really. But isn't that the summation? Isn't that the simplicity of it? And then I think, how did we get here from there? Into the political, religious, divisive craziness that is the church today. I don't mean you folks. I mean, generally. How did we get here from there? I think it's a classic situation in which one thing led to another. You know, one thing led to another. When you think about how this started and the simplicity of what it was all about, you start to make sense. So, so here's the plan. I don't know who made it up, but... I guess God. But in this room right now, there are folks, and online, there are folks that have been doing this for a long, long time. You've had years and years, decades of experience. You've heard all the sermons. You know all the Bible. You can quote Scripture. You got it. You, you know, I always believe when I'm writing a sermon that if I know it, you already heard it. Because there are very few really fresh sermons available. Amen? <laughs> you don't know whether to really get excited about that or not. There's very few really, because we, there are people in this room, when I, when I preach a sermon, you're like, yeah, that, no, that ain't right. 
I've studied that particular passage, and this is what that's really about. Amen? There are. Because you're experts. You, you've studied a lot. And then there are people that are just now trying to figure out if they even want to be a part of this thing. And there are some folks that are brand new to the faith. And somehow, in God's wisdom, we all are supposed to show up and worship together in the same space. Who made that plan? Can you imagine just one grade in a public school? It's okay, you kindergartners getting in here with these seniors, and they're graduating and you're starting, but we're going to have one lesson together, and we're all going to benefit from it. Hit it, teacher. It's a microcosm of Sunday right there. And because of that, one thing leads to another. So we got a whole group of people in the room who've been around forever, who are still, they're trying to purify, and, and they're, you know, they're fine-tuning they're dialing this thing in. They've been at this thing a long time. And there's other folks that don't even know there are controls yet. They're just starting to figure it out. And those of us who've been around a while, we, we've developed all sorts of things around which we worship, around which we think about this is how we do life. This is how we do religion. This is how we do faith. This is what it means to be a good Christian. This is what it means to be pure. This is what it means to be clean. And one thing leads to another. Have you ever seen the lifestyle of, or the, yeah, the life cycle of an institution? Anybody ever studied that stuff? It's kind of interesting stuff. Clearly, you can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> so, uh, it depends on who you ask, but most uh, studies of such things tell us that there are at least four stages to the life cycle of an institution, and very often we consider five, depending on how you break it down. So let me break them down for you. Phase one, somebody has a great idea. They invent a new thing or they have a new service to offer, and it's usually a few shareholders, uh, and in that they have a very clear mission and vision, and because they're just starting out, they're willing to risk everything for the sake of the vision. And so everything is sacrificed for the sake of the vision. This is, it's all about this single-mindedness of getting this product or this service to the marketplace because it's better than anyone else's. And this is our time in history and we're going to go do it. That single-minded sort of purpose then leads to growth. And so out of that growth then comes a dilemma. So now we have a product that's growing or a service that's growing. How will we manage the growth? So now we must hire people in order to help us manage the growth. Phase two, we hire people. They're not the shareholders, they're not the stakeholders, but they're here to help fulfill the vision of the stakeholders. And so in order to do that, and the fact that now the stakeholders are not involved in the everyday operation of everything, they begin to create policies that will help this new layer of management be loyal and understand all the purposes of the mission which is great. Phase two is a growth phase still. Phase one, big growth. Phase two, big growth, which then leads to a need to bring in more people to the organization. Now, phase three, as we involve these new managers, involves another dilemma. Because now we have people in the middle who are loyal to the shareholders, but have people below them. And there's a little insecurity now because they don't want the people below them to be too good. Because if the people below them are too good, guess who they will be noticed by and who they will take over for? The people in the middle. 
So the people in the middle create policies that help the people below them be loyal to them as they are loyal to the stakeholders. Phase three of an institution is usually where growth begins to stumble and it begins to slow down. Stage four. Most of the energy of the institution is spent in meetings trying to figure out how to help people be loyal to the policies and there is very little consideration for the mission and purpose of the organization as a whole. Stage five. The institution is simply, the people within the institution are simply trying to keep it alive because they need the job. Now, that's not only true of businesses, it's true of religion. That, that Jesus Christ comes into a space in which the Judeo-Christian tradition is already thousands of years old. And what he finds when he arrives here and begins to traffic in the Judeo-Christian tradition is he finds a bunch of people who are really in stage five. They're really about self-preservation. They have policies that are far removed from the core mission, which was very simple. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And somehow that statement has turned into the convoluted pharisaical law into which Jesus walks. By now, you are asking yourself this question. Why is he telling us all of this? Because I want to read for you now Matthew 15. And I think Matthew 15 will make more sense to you because we've talked about this. So listen to what it says. Matthew 15. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, By the way, I know we don't always read scripture with emotion, but these are cataclysmic phrases that are being spoken. I mean, they come from Jerusalem and they ask him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? It doesn't say, why are they not obeying the scripture? It says, why do they break the tradition of the elders? Why are they not being loyal to the policies that now controls religion? And Jesus says to them, why do you break the commandments of God. I mean, you get what we're saying here? The representation of God on earth, the Judeo-Christian tradition, not yet quite Christian, but Judeo-tradition. You have given yourselves to loyalty to policies that in fact violate the commands of God. Why do you break command for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might be, have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they're not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachers are merely human rules. And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand what goes into the, someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that, what the, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when, you, when they heard this? And he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. 
leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So, so these are remarks that are just overwhelming in their scope and in their power. So, so Jesus has selected a very specific thing. So, so they've come to him and they've said, listen, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Because that's the law. That's the way it's supposed to work. And Jesus says, well, why do you break the law? And he cites for them a specific example. And he says to them, so here's the deal. The first commandment that has to do with taking care of other people is to honor your father and mother. And that means that as they get older, you, you financially care for them. No social security, no pension programs. It's the responsibility of the young to take care of the old. But the Pharisees had come up with this deal, and the deal was you could decide that your wealth was set aside for God, and therefore it couldn't be used to take care of your aging parents. Now, you didn't have to, that didn't mean you had to give the money to the temple. You just had to declare it. It was just something that you said. It was just a process you went through. You still got to use the money that was yours, but when any of it was supposed to be used for anything other than your own ends, then it was declared for God and you didn't spend it. So you had destitute parents who were dying of starvation and living in poverty while people were taking the wealth and using it for themselves. And so Jesus cites this very specific example. And as he teaches now, as he talks to them, as he confronts the Pharisees and speaks to the disciples, he's highlighting the dangers of what goes on. He's highlighting these unclean perceptions, how we see the world, how we move from this place in which the simplicity of the gospel, in which we are to love God with all of our heart, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We come into this space to be transformed, to encounter the creator, to allow him to change us from the inside out, and then us in turn to change the world. And when we move away from the simplicity into this complexity, into all of these things that represent purity to us, into all the ways in which we're going to grow and mature. And now we become loyal to these systems and to the Savior and the relationship and this divine God. Then some things happen, and he highlights several. Number one, when we get into this mode, there is a danger of personal hypocrisy. Personal hypocrisy. So the Pharisees are practicing this religion that had so many layers, that had pushed it past its simplicity. So many layers. In fact, what we're going on here is two things. There is the written law and there is the oral law or the tradition of the elders. And what had gone on over the decades and the declensions of what had happened is we have the old Levitical law, which is a part of the Old Testament, it's a part of our scripture. Now he's going to address that in a minute. It's going to be astonishing what he has to say about it. But we have that old tradition. But out of that old tradition then came people who were, and maybe you understand the logic, how do we not break? I don't want to live in a place where I have ten rules, and if I break any of them, that's a capital crime. That's too dangerous. I don't want to live in that space. So the elders said, we're going to build a hedge around the law. We're going to build a circle around the law. So if we fail over here, we're just failing a little. Instead of failing over here where we'll be failing big. So we're going to build a little hedge around the law. 
And then out of that little hedge around the law came another little hedge around the law. Here's some policies that help us not break our relationship with God. And here's some policies that help us not break the policies about our relationship with God. And here are some policies that would help us pay attention to the policies that help us obey the policies. About You understand where we are? How many laws are in effect in the first century for the Pharisaical law, the hedge around the law? 618. 618 laws by the first century that say, I am a hundred declensions from what this faith is about. And my loyalty is here. So that when the Son of God walks on earth, and the divine God of the universe is tabernacled in human flesh, He will speak truth, and I will find it offensive. And I will accuse Him of not obeying the rules. Thankfully, we learned our lesson. And we don't act like that anymore. So the danger is, is when we live in this reality, is we build a a kind of personal hypocrisy in which we can justify our own behaviors, in which we can justify because we are living out the purity policy that we have created. Never mind that the measure of the whole thing is this. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Well, now I know all of you good people. I just described your life. I, your attitude, your spirit. That's it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness. All you folks joining us online. But let me just ask you this. Do you believe as you think about the church of Jesus Christ as a whole that that is descriptive of what is found out there? That you drive up and down the street and go, oh, you know what? I could stop there because there's a place that's all about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I could stop anywhere along here, all these churches. We don't even think that. That's why so many of us, we drive down the street and go, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. Amen? Amen. Because there's... When we live in this reality, when this complexity, when one thing leads to another, when we move ourselves away from the simplicity of this, I am to be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms me from the inside out and then drives me to change the world in His name. When we move away from that simplicity, we're in danger of personal hypocrisy. Number two, he says not only... Is it personal hypocrisy, but it's prioritizing appearances? That we do a lot of things because it makes us appear to be spiritual. In fact, we begin to measure people by the appearances they have as opposed to the content of their character or, or, or to the nature of their heart. I think the best way to illustrate that in our modern culture is this. We have certain things that we value in people we consider to be Christians, and we have certain things that we just don't consider to be a problem at all. So there's all kinds of behaviors that we consider to be, you know, this is sinful and don't do any of that. And I've said this to you before, but I'm always astonished at how many of those lists of things in the New Testament have to do with attitude and words that we speak. In fact, right here at the end of this passage, he's going to talk about slandering 
And he's going to talk about the reality of what it means to just be negative. To tear things down instead of build things up. To, to just simply be people who are supposed to be, very simply, the salt of the earth, add flavor to a tasteless world and the light of the world. To bring warmth and comfort and direction and illumination. And, and this, is the, this is the thing. This is the thing. But how we create this sort of process, this prioritizing of appearances, where we feel like, well, I'm, I, look, I, I look like I'm doing all the things. Never mind. And by the way, this is exactly where Jesus is going in the conversation. It's exactly where he's going in the conversation. Prioritizing appearances. Number three, which by the way, if you just wanted to have a good example, how about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, who had become a Pharisee of the Pharisees, According to the law, blameless, meaning in his own mind, he was better than any of the other Pharisees, and he kept all the rules and never broke any of them, all 618 of them. When he encountered people who had come into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, he decided that they were a threat to his method of purity, so that he undertook to persecute them and to wipe them out, to get them out of the religious system. Who did he target? The people with a personal loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because his religion had brought him to a place where he believed his personal appearance of holiness allowed him to look at people who were in a dynamic relationship with God and go, they don't belong. Kind of like when the Pharisees can't see Jesus himself. How easy it is to move into that space. Number three, they were neglecting transformation. So Jesus calls the crowd together and he says, hey, it's not what's going in that's causing the problem. It's what's coming out. That the Pharisees, in fact, he has another space in which he addresses the Pharisees and says, you are whitewashed tombs. You look okay on the outside, but on the inside you are full of dead men's bones. That somehow this practice of religion can move us into clinchings away from the core of who we are, of why we're here, of what we believe, of what's passionate about our relationship with Jesus Christ, into a space in which we are living by rules, but we're not being transformed. We're not being changed from the inside out. And the Pharisees had gotten into this rule-keeping to a point that, that they couldn't even see their own cruelty. They couldn't even see what was happening in their own world and in their own life. God forbid that that would be happening to us. That somehow we would be practicing a personal hypocrisy or prioritizing appearances and then neglecting transformation. Number four, they had given into a blinding self-righteousness. That they had come to a place where they were so insular they were so busy looking at their own journey and their own life and deciding who was in and who was out and who to exclude and who to avoid. Here's the reality of the church. It ought to be messy. Amen? I mean, it's supposed to be a diverse bunch of people showing up here on the weekends. Because our mission is not to ourselves. 
it's to someone other than us. That you and I are called, created to be in this space so that we can encounter a divine God and sit side by side with folks who are coming into a place of faith. Maybe trying to decide if they believe at all. Maybe trying to decide, I don't know about you, but I meet a lot of people when I tell them I'm a minister, they're like, whoa, that's so weird. <laughs> and you know what? I read the same articles and see the same news and I see the same people interviewed and I'll be like, yeah, it is weird. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know this, when they're going to write a story or there's going to be a character on a television show or in a movie and it's going to be a minister, he's going to be super strange. <laughs> Amen. Or when they interview somebody for a news story, they're going to find a person that doesn't have a lot of education and has very radical views that can be taken and twisted in a way to make the gospel seem uninviting. And we're supposed to sit in space with people and the messiness of what this is. We're not supposed to be sanitized. We're not supposed to label some things. We're supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Supposed to be people who are changing the world in Jesus' name. Not hiding under a desk, waiting for the end of the world. And so this reality that somehow they had built this blinding self-righteousness in which all that mattered to them was their own insular world. And who to keep out of it so that it stayed clean and neat and orderly. And all of the rules were followed. And they forgot the product that God had placed in their hands and entrusted to their care. Finally, number five, there was a refusal to worship. Peter says, explain the parable to us. It's pretty simple, Peter. It's not what goes in. And think about what Jesus is saying to this crowd. To a crowd that all they know are the external rules. Their whole religion is practicing the ritual. It's all adherence to the Levitical law. It's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. Can you imagine the impact of these words? Because what he's saying is, you know that thing you read in Leviticus? It's being misapplied. That your whole system of faith is being based on something that I'm saying doesn't matter. I'm saying to you, here's what matters. What comes out of you. It's, it's pretty simple, isn't it? So that in the encounter of Isaiah in chapter 6, when he says these words, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and around him were the seraphim, and each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, with two they were flowing, they were shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices... The threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke and I cried out, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the one and only. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal taken with tongs from the altar and he touched it to my lips and he said, see your sins are forgiven, your sins are atoned for. And then I heard the voice of God say, who will go for me and whom shall I send? And I said, here my Lord, send me. Because see, that's the simplicity of what this is. 
The simplicity is that we come together to worship God and we see him high and lifted up. And when we see who he is, we see who we are. And we say, woe is me, I need to be changed. Help me, help me, help me. I don't have time to look out there. I'm not practicing a set list of rules. I'm practicing personal holiness. And I have encountered a divine God. And you know what it showed me? It didn't show me anything about somebody else. It showed me a whole lot about me. About me. That's what happens over and over. Me, 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 me. And then as I confess and I say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. What is that met with? It's grace, grace, atonement, forgiveness. And then immediately, I'm not sent to a remedial program. I'm not sent to training. I heard the voice of God say, who will go for me and whom shall we send? Don't sit in here. Don't sit in here week after week. You get this stuff in you and then you get out there. You go. You get sent. God doesn't say, okay, it's a, it's a lifelong self-help program and training camp. <laughs> we come in every week and we check again. We encounter the divine God. We worship. We sing the songs. We lift up. We look at the creator. We see ourselves. Forgive me, God. Help me, God. Change me, God. We don't go, look at all the things I'm doing. Look at all the policies I'm following. Look at all the rules I keep. I think I'm okay. Nope. Once I see God, I'm like, nope. All my righteousness, what does he say? It's filthy rags. <laughs> I consider them garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as my Savior. I get back into this space. And then once I'm in this space of divine encounter and transformation, I go. I love. I love the Lord my God with all my heart. I love my neighbors, myself. And that is an ongoing process that will last me forever. We are told by experts that in the next decade or so, we will close tens of thousands of churches in the United States. Have you seen these studies? Tens of thousands of churches will be closing, are closing now. We are in the midst of it and will be closing in the future. There are two major reasons for these churches closing. Number one, deferred maintenance. That churches have been struggling financially for decades and they are one catastrophic failure away from the inability to recover. So once the HVA system goes out, once there's a major plumbing problem, uh, that, that while this maintenance has continued to, you know, sort of deteriorate over the last couple of decades, city codes have continued to become more stringent and difficult. And so there, we're just at a breaking point. And experts say we're going to experience that over the next couple of decades. Catastrophic failures in which churches cannot financially recover and they'll need to close up and, and, and end. Second reason. There simply are no longer young people being called into ministry to serve. And as tens of thousands of boomer pastors and ministry leaders retire, there is no one coming behind them to take over. Now let me ask you this. Why do you think that is? Because God no longer calls young people into ministry? No. Because we as the church have represented the kingdom of God and the mission of God as policy keeping. And we have forgotten to instill in our children that this is about a personal relationship with a God who can not only transform us, but can transform the world. Let me say it differently. That the only hope of my personal transformation and the transformation of the world in which I live is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. It will not be a political revolution. It will not be a social revolution. It will not be a cultural revolution. We've had all of those. We've done all of those. The only thing that marks lasting change in a human soul is an encounter with a divine God. And we have kids 
who have been given a church that is so undesirable that they would rather support cultural causes because they are more on point to changing the world than the church's agenda. And that ought not be. And we are the people that can change it. We are the people that can make a difference. And it starts right up here. Those Pharisees were not bad human beings. They were sincere people who sacrificed greatly for their faith. They had just misplaced their priorities. And listen, this is so simple. This is so simple. We are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart. We're to allow that to be transforming. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a good judge of my own transformation. Are you? Don't you think that's why David prayed like he prayed? Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Because if I look at myself, I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. It's only that divine encounter with God where I go, whoa. <laughs> Turns out I'm not okay. I'm not all that good. I got misguided. I got, le- I got priorities jumbled up somewhere. Recently, somebody said to me, I haven't felt the movement of the Holy Spirit in this church in a long, long time. And I thought, well, there's a lot of us that really pray and try to figure out what God wants us to do. I mean, we really search and we agonize from the people that plan and write to the people that plan the worship services to the graphics that go up and all the things that happen in the life of the church. And this thought struck me. What do you do to prepare for this moment? I'm not saying that we don't search our hearts and say, God, if one person can say that, that matters. But I am saying this. How many of us lay awake on Saturday night saying, God, is my heart ready for tomorrow? Is my heart ready to be fed? Is my heart ready? Or will I come into this space going, oh, man, they're doing another one of those praise and worship songs. I wish they'd do a hymn. I just wish they'd do a hymn. I just need a hymn. I need a good hymn. Where's the hymn? I was in a service a couple of weeks ago, and they have a traditional service and a contemporary service, and I went to both, and and I'm very contemporary, I mean, obviously. <laughs> but you know which service I knew every song and all the harmonies? You know which service I was going, okay, I think, no, I don't know this. Okay, I, 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 well, no, I don't know this one. And you know which service I was just singing? Singing? Just singing? <laughs> It was a traditional service. I was just singing away. I knew every song. I knew every word of every verse of every hymn. I knew the harmony parts because I grew up singing all of them. And I know some of you are like, just sing a hymn. Please sing a hymn. We're going to do a series on hymns because these people are going to learn hymns. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to learn something. But you know what? If my depth of encounter with the divine God of the universe is based on what kind of music they're singing at church, I got to do some soul searching, man. 
I got to come into that space where I say, God, prepare me and somehow use that music they're going to sing today because it ain't mine. <laughs> Amen. And that's okay. It doesn't need to be everybody's. But somewhere we got to get back to the simplicity of what this is about. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And to allow that reality to transform us from the inside out. And then to get that out of this room and into this world that is so desperately in need of transformation. Let's pray. God, would you help us? Maybe in these moments that we've talked and shared, maybe you've sensed the Holy Spirit convicting you and saying, you know, I, I need to pray. And I need to ask God to forgive me and transform me. God, would you hear those hearts in this moment? Would you give those individuals to whom you are speaking right now the courage to step out in a few moments and find a prayer counselor or pastor because we want to talk to you we want to pray with you we want to guide you through the process of welcoming Christ into your heart and are reestablishing your faith and finding a new commitment or growing in Bible study and discipleship God, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict us and to transform us, to forgive us and cleanse us. That in Isaiah's story, there's just hardly a heartbeat between that moment of realization and that moment of forgiveness. There's just hardly a, a fraction of a second before recognizing the need and finding the cure. What a great grace that is. And would you challenge us to be a church that recognizes the simplicity of our call and diligently, passionately lives in the messiness of this culture and of this world, but we live in it in a way with our eyes turned heavenward, trusting that every day we come into this space, we are hearing and seeking a divine creator who has the power to change us from the inside out and will continue to refine us so that we might be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and there's plenty of room for messiness in a place like that because our eyes are fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so lead us and guide us. I pray, Lord, for each person who feels the convicting press of the Holy Spirit. Here the confession of our hearts. Don't let us go from this place without writing it down, without calling someone, without speaking to a pastor so that we can follow through with the insights you're speaking into our lives. Draw us closer, Lord. Draw us closer. Will you hear our response to your word as each of us enters into true worship and gives you praise and humility and access to the deepest corners of our heart. May it be so. We pray in Jesus' name and everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? 
Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.